Don't turn down your screen brightness. That warm glow you're feeling is the summer sun shining through the internet machine. We're coming to you from California. This is the Launch Pod for Pomona Valley Church. That's right. I think I have been here for seven weeks now, and every single day has been sunny and between 75 and 100 degrees. We had a friend in grad school who was from somewhere not California, and I remember him saying, you know, I used to think I'd miss the seasons, but there hasn't been a single sunny day when I've been walking to class and said to myself, oh man, I wish it was 40 degrees and drizzling and windy right now. Ah, the joys of spring in Illinois or Michigan or Boston, but yes, I think that sums it up nicely. We're back. So glad to be with you all again on the Launch Pod. We've been getting settled here in Claremont, California, getting the house livable and the kids in a summer day camp. And figuring out what exactly we are doing with ourselves. Haven't got that down quite yet. (laughs) So far, we've had two of what we are calling simply summer dinners. These Sunday night dinners are a time where we connect, reflect on one of our values a bit, celebrate communion, and begin to dream about where God would have us go from here. They continue through August. Just yesterday, we shared that our church website, PomonaValleyChurch.org, is live. Yay! We hope that is another space where people could get to know us. And speaking of getting to know us as a church, for this episode and a few that follow, we want to answer some questions that we've been receiving along the way. And so this first one is going to be an attempt to answer the family of questions like, What makes this church unique? Or put another way, Are you really doing anything much different from what other churches do or want to do? Now, I actually joined Steve Zelt on his podcast, A Small Good Thing, and this question came up there. We'll link to that conversation in the show notes, which you will now find at PomonaValleyChurch.org. Yay! But we also wanted to unpack it perhaps a bit differently here. We've talked a fair amount about how we don't think there are very many churches quite like what we're wanting to build. But it certainly does seem like there's some limitations to language around this topic because we use some of the same words as a lot of other churches do, but we don't always think we mean the same things by those words. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Maybe one of the biggest of those confusing and uh, multi-use words is evangelical. It's a word that has shifted in meaning over the past few decades, and not necessarily in good ways. Yes, it's become more synonymous with a demographic that votes Republican, is pro-gun, pro-life, anti-immigration, more about that than it has anything to do with Jesus in most people's minds, which is where the word began. It makes it pretty tricky to then self-identify with the word evangelical Yes, Yeah, we find ourselves still holding on to what it means historically or what it meant historically to be evangelical while wanting to reject some of the baggage that has accrued more recently. So we don't really know if it's still helpful to call ourselves evangelical or not, or if we should stick an adjective on there like progressive evangelical, or if we should just give up and call ourselves something else entirely. What we do know is that we don't know of all that many churches that have combined these four things that Pomona Valley Church hopes to bring together. First, being evangelical in the historical sense, which we'll get to in a second. Fully inclusive of women in all forms of leadership and ministry. Committed to ethnic and cultural diversity. And fully inclusive of LGBTQ followers of Jesus. 
I think a lot of people would assume that churches like that already exist. Certainly. And some do, but probably not enough and not usually more than a few in any region. I think the biggest sticking point actually in that whole combination might be the word evangelical. Yeah. There are a lot of churches that are inclusive of women and people who are gay and are multi-ethnic, but not many of those churches are evangelical. So what does it mean? historically evangelical, because we don't think it has much to do with politics. No, it doesn't. And in this episode, we're going to be drawing quite a bit on the work of a historian of American Christianity named Mark Knoll. He's written several books on the roots of American evangelicalism, which we'll link to in the show notes for all you fans of church history out there. He traces the roots of evangelicalism pretty much back to early in the Protestant Reformation. Some of the principles and pillars that kind of make up what evangelical means. And he makes the case that while there's been a lot of variation among the evangelicals over the years, there tend to be four main things that distinguish what it means to be evangelical. Not that no one else believes these four things, but that most evangelicals will hold to all four of them. We think it'll be most helpful for this episode to talk about all four together. So it's going to be one whole episode and perhaps a bit longer than our usual. But we also hope this helps you keep the whole flow together as a listener. Now we find that we want to hold on to these four pillars or markers as they sometimes are called, but perhaps not in quite the same way that other evangelicals would. So we're going to get into it briefly. What are the four historical markers of what it means to be evangelical? Why do they matter? And how might we hold to them, but perhaps in a slightly different way than many churches at the moment? First and most important is a high view of the authority of the Bible. Evangelicals believe that the Bible is trustworthy, that it is true, and that it should be our most important guide to what it means to follow Jesus. And we agree with all of that unreservedly. We absolutely believe that God reveals God's self through the Bible and that reading the Bible, studying the Bible, and allowing the Bible to shape you are non-negotiables when it comes to following Jesus. In short, it is not possible to follow Jesus into the world without taking seriously what the Bible has to say about Jesus and the world. It's the only way to fully know who Jesus is. There are other ways of learning about and being with Jesus too, of course, but the Bible is crucial. But for many evangelicals, taking the Bible seriously has come to mean taking the Bible literally in every detail. And this is one of my beat a dead horse arguments that I make. But here's the thing. Taking the Bible literally in every detail is actually not taking the Bible seriously. Like a Jane Austen novel is fiction. But I think most Jane Austen fans, Mary, you can correct me if I'm wrong, would argue that there is something true in the stories that Austen tells. You can learn something true about the world and people through the fictional story she's telling. I would agree with that. That's part of why she's a significant author, is the way she invites you to understand something from a new perspective. But if you start reading Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility as if they're history textbooks, you're going to be moving further away from the true things that she as an author is presenting because you're trying to force the book to be something it's not at all intended to be. Exactly. And Jesus's parables are an easy example of this in the Bible. If we took Jesus's parables literally, like there actually was a boy who took his father's inheritance and ran off to a far country and ended up feeding pigs, etc., etc., and we tried to figure out what years that boy was alive and whether he lived in Judea or Samaria or whatever. And we would be missing what was true about the story. We'd be missing the point. 
And in that way, we would be taking Jesus's words less seriously, not more. Exactly. And what the take the Bible literally crowd is doing is making that same mistake in other parts of the Bible, where it isn't quite as obvious that a particular passage or book wasn't ever intended to be taken literally. Genesis 1 is poetry. It's intended to be a poetic retelling of something fundamentally true, that God created the world, that God took chaos and created order, that God made something good, and that God created humans to carry on that work of making an orderly good creation. There are all sorts of clues that this is the case. The similarities and contrasts to the other ancient Near Eastern creation stories, for example. The way that day one and four line up and two and five line up. The fact that the sun doesn't exist until day four, so it would be literally impossible to have literal days before that. Yes. So when Christians, in the name of taking the Bible seriously, reject basic established science and say the world was created in 4004 BC, they're not actually taking the Bible seriously because they aren't reading it the way it was supposed to be read and the way that the author meant when they wrote it. And we aren't saying they are doing that intentionally or maliciously, but that is what's happening. And there are other passages in books, like the book of Esther or Daniel, for example, where there are genuine disagreements over what exactly is going on. Did Esther really exist in a historical sense, or is that whole book a parable, just like the parables Jesus told, containing fundamentally true things about God, even if they aren't literally true? Sometimes it's hard to know. There might not be a ton of overwhelming evidence. So to sum up, we absolutely hold to the evangelical principle of a high regard for scripture. And because of that, not in spite of it, we are committed to learning from the best scholarship available about how to read the Bible on its own terms so that we can most fully recognize the truth that it contains and we can most fully be shaped by that truth in our day-to-day -day lives following Jesus. Exactly. So what's next? So the second principle that Mark Knoll identifies is the centrality of Jesus's death and resurrection. Some people call this the atonement in theology terms. The belief that not only did Jesus die, not only was he raised from the dead, but that this isn't some abstract thing to believe in. It actually changes everything. That it is the central point of all of history. Right. N.T. Wright has some great books about this that we can link to, and we'll link some other books about the atonement as well if any of you theology nerds want to read more about the atonement. We absolutely affirm this principle as well. The atonement matters immensely. It matters that Jesus really lived. It matters that Jesus died on a cross at the hands of the Roman government. It matters that Jesus rose from the dead with a new body. Now, just like the first principle, this one has gotten flattened significantly over the years to the point that your typical evangelical church is actually missing something important. Most evangelical churches, not all by any means, but most, preach a version of the atonement that is known as penal substitutionary atonement. You sin. You deserve death as a penalty or punishment for that sin. Jesus died to take the penalty or punishment, so you don't have to. And we don't affirm that. No, but I think we would both say that the reason we don't affirm it is because that we affirm this first principle, the importance of the Bible. There are some who argue, and we would find it persuasive, that penal substitution is not actually very biblical. 
Right. The Bible absolutely talks about the consequences of sin, the effects of sin. But that's not the same thing as a penalty. Like if my kids touch the hot stove, they burn their hands. That isn't a penalty. Like I'm punishing them for disobeying my command to not touch the stove. That's a natural consequence. You touch the stove, you're going to get burned, even if I wish that weren't the case. And it's not 100% clear in the Bible which of those is the result of sin. Is death a penalty, like God is punishing us for disobedience? Or is it instead a consequence, like the separation from God, the source of life that naturally results from sin, then naturally results in death? It does make sense that being separated from the source of life would result in death, doesn't it? It does. But we fully recognize that there could be legitimate disagreement on this point. The more important point that we want to make is that the Bible uses so many more images for what Jesus's life, death, and resurrection mean than just substitution. It talks about Jesus's death and resurrection bringing us healing, bringing us into the family of God, bringing us freedom, and so much more. And we touch on this in a fair amount of detail in season one of the podcast, the episode called Good News. So you can go back and have a listen to that one if you'd like a refresher. What we want to say here is that because we take the Bible seriously, because we take Jesus's death and resurrection seriously, we want to draw on all of those images from scripture because different images will have different impact for different people. And all the images together help us all lean into the work that Jesus is doing. I think that's why the Bible uses so many different images, because what Jesus did was for all people. So Bible, Jesus's death and resurrection. What next? So third is an emphasis on personal conversion. Evangelicals tend to believe that it is important for people to decide for themselves to follow Jesus. Being converted, being born again, as Jesus says, is crucial. And we affirm this too. You don't just fall into following Jesus. At some point, each one of us makes a decision for ourselves that we're going to orient our lives around Jesus. Yeah, there's some churches where they look at it as you're almost born into the community and you never actually have a choice in the matter. And we would say that it's important for people to choose for themselves. Just like the first two uh, pillars, though, we want to add some nuance. We do not simply mean pray the sinner's prayer. And for some people, they will have a moment where something happens. There's a before and after kind of experience. They realize they want to follow Jesus. They have never done that before. They will pray a prayer of some sort and have a very important, significant personal experience of being filled with God's spirit and joy and purpose and all of that. It does happen. We know people who have that story. Neither of us has that story, though. No. Both of us grew up in the church. We were part of a community that followed Jesus and loved Jesus very much for our whole lives. And so our conversion was not so much a point in time when we went from being a hopeless, destitute sinner to a born-again Christian. And I think both of us have had times where we felt a little uneasy about that when we've been in environments where people were expected to tell their dramatic testimony stories of their conversion. Yes, because for both of us, our conversion was a gradual coming of understanding who Jesus is and deciding we wanted to follow Jesus. We've had times where we've maybe been more intentional in noting our commitment or a recommitment to Jesus, but not because we weren't before. Conversion looks different for different people. We think, though, that people do tend to have moments along the way where they stop, take inventory of who they are and where they are, 
who Jesus is and what Jesus might invite them into and say, yeah, I want that. I would like to follow Jesus and trust Jesus with my life. And those moments matter, whatever form they take. But one thing that's important is that they do indeed take a lot of different forms. I once heard a pastor say that some people come to meet Jesus like an alarm clock that wakes them up, where they were dead asleep and a sound just jolts them awake. But other people come to follow Jesus more like the rising of the sun, where you can't entirely mark the moment that the light came, but now you know it's day. So Bible, Jesus, conversion, what's the last one? The final principle Noel talks about as a marker of evangelicalism is what he calls activism. It means we don't sit in our little communities feeling so great about how we're part of God's family. We go out into the world, inviting others to join us and making the world more of what God intends for it to be. And we absolutely affirm this. This is why we say we want to follow Jesus into the world together. It is not possible to follow Jesus and stay in our nice, safe community, having nothing to do with the world around us as if it's a country club or something like that. Following Jesus necessarily means that we will go out into the world Jesus loves, bringing good news with us. And once again, this principle has gotten flattened in some evangelical churches to mean, go share your faith, period. So people take evangelism classes and learn how to draw a diagram on a napkin or the four spiritual laws or the Roman road or whichever method you learned, and, and then they go out. And give it to anybody they meet in a coffee shop or next to them on an airplane. Or on the street corner. Now, there is nothing wrong with evangelism, nothing whatsoever. We support evangelism, but God invites us to a rich and deep and comprehensive engagement with the world around us that tells God's story and invites people into good news. It's more than simply telling people with words that Jesus offers them a ticket on the heaven-bound train after death. Again, we support evangelism, but we also support people bringing more love and justice and freedom and peace into the world. And again, this is because we value the Bible, which talks about bringing all these things with us as we go into the world, and that by making the world around us more joyful and good, by helping human beings of all races, genders, and orientations thrive, by taking care of this planet and the creation God has entrusted with us, and on and on, we are doing the work of God in the world. Right. And so we are fully committed to the Bible to the importance of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, to people making a personal commitment to follow Jesus, and to bringing the good news in all its forms into the world. And in that sense, we are squarely in the evangelical tradition. But we might not look like some of the other evangelical churches out there nowadays. Not because we're less evangelical, but because, at the risk of being a little bit inflammatory here, because we actually think we're closer to the historical principles of evangelicalism than some in the tradition now. In the 20th century, evangelical kind of got a rebirth as a word that was used, and it was used intentionally in contrast to, at the time, the fundamentalist movement, which was itself a reaction to some of the more liberal strains of Christianity in the modern world at the time. Fundamentalism at the time had markers related to getting the fundamentals of faith just right. It's evolved since then, and it is likely a word that you're familiar with. Now, David Gushy has a great book called Still Christian. And one of the things that he says as a Southern Baptist, and when he looks at the influence specifically of the Southern Baptists on American Christianity, is that fundamentalism has crept into what was evangelicalism and taken it over 
so that now the word evangelical is not describing what it used to. It's actually covering over a fundamentalist revival. At some point in the middle of the 20th century, the fundamentalists began to realize that that word was pejorative and that people didn't like it very much. And so more and more, they tried to find a more palatable word. And in that way, evangelicalism has shifted as more and more fundamentalists began to describe themselves as evangelical. And so you can see how the word is complicated, but the historical tradition is incredibly important. The changes that have happened with the word matter. And we find that we still want to stay deeply connected to those four original pillars, although perhaps in a different way than others might understand them now. Yes. And we should also say, and you can listen to some of our previous podcasts to get more detail on this too, the other distinctives that we have mentioned, having women lead and preach, including LGBTQ Christians fully, being anti-racist, those all come out of our commitments to evangelicalism too. We believe those things are biblical, that they are a result of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, that they are a part of bringing the good news into the world in all its fullness. We affirm those things because we are evangelical, not in spite of it. And so we hope that that run through of what it means historically to be evangelical helps you see why we think Pomona Valley Church is, if not totally unique, at least rarer than it ought to be. It can be a pretty difficult thing to find. We're going to go ahead and end there. If you've made it this far through the history walkthrough, kudos to you. Yay, history. We'll be back next time. But in the meantime, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter. Find us on Instagram at Pomona Valley Church. Visit our website, PomonaValleyChurch.org, and find the show notes there now. And come to dinner on Sunday. Yes, please do. We'll see you next time. We love you all. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.